Um, there are times when I wish that I had a normal job. Um, last year, there was a birthday party that Marin and I went to, and I was chatting with a guy who we know who, who's in real estate. And we had not long since, you know, sold and bought, um, bought our, our place. And so I was able to have this interesting and informed and intelligent conversation with him, I thought so anyway, about, <laughs> um, about the market and about the ins and outs of, of selling and, and just what's involved in, in his job. And then, bless him, he tried to do the same with me. <laughs> but he's a guy with no church background and no understanding of faith, so what I do was just so foreign to him. So how do I talk about just spending my days studying a book and talking to people and you know, delivering a, a message um, once a week kind of a thing? And to do all that as a job that I get paid for. Uh, a, a bit later in the same party, um, I was talking to a somewhat intoxicated farmer, and, and the, the same thing happened with him. He, he at least had some childhood experience of church, so um, he was a bit better at it. But even so, church and being so committed to, to church that you would actually, you know, work for it full time is just this fundamentally foreign idea for these guys. Uh, I came away from that party wishing, you know, that I was a plumber or <laughs> something normal like that. Church, I mean, let, let's be honest, in our society, more and more is quite the weird entity. Uh, and, and to say that we go to church, it's less and less understood by the people around us. At best, church is perceived as, as nice, but, you know, not really relevant. Um, good for you. Uh, and, and at worst, it's seen as being judgmental and hypocritical and, and unloving. But either way, the church is being increasingly marginalized, isn't it? I mean, churches used to be the centres of community life, both geographically but also socially, but, but now no more. Uh, I'm, you know, the Baptist Union talk about how um, in the urban sprawl of, of Melbourne and in the new developments going in around there, the developers are explicitly denying the building of uh, places of, of worship. Churches and church leaders used to be looked up to and, and respected, but scandals of, of abuses of various kinds, as well as then the, de the denials and cover-ups that often go with that, they've undermined the integrity and the witness of the church. Church and faith used to significantly shape the country's laws and morals, but you don't have to look too far anymore to know that that's no longer the case. And so, do you, do you feel some of this in, in your experience? Do you feel that awkwardness and inner hesitancy when someone says to you, what did you do over the weekend? Do, do you feel that need to, or that desire at least, to, to perhaps censor your response? Oh, I just hung out with a bunch of people rather than saying, I went to church. And yet, here we are, at church, part of a church, committed to a church, I presume. And for all that this church you know, might be thriving in, in our experience of it, it's like we've signed up to play on the losing team. It's like we've chosen to sit at the table with the, the weirdos and the losers and the outcasts. And in lots of ways, us being here today makes no sense to a watching world. But however much they might deny, the world is watching. 
And so the fact that we are here does say something. For one thing, it says that we believe in the church and we believe in Christ, its head and its chief shepherd. And we believe that despite, you know, more and more evidence to the contrary, we believe that the church is not done. Eugene Peterson, um, who who paraphrased the the Bible in the message, he says this. He says, "So, so why church? And the short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. Church is the core element in the strategy of the Holy Spirit for providing human witness and physical presence to the Jesus-inaugurated kingdom of God in this world. As not that kingdom complete, but it is a witness to that kingdom. Eugene says here something that, that we really need to remember. In effect, he says that we should feel like we're on the outer, that we should feel like we don't quite fit in because we don't. Because we're part of a colony of heaven in a country of death. We are, in the language that Peter uses as he writes to the church, we're, we're foreigners and exiles, we're aliens and strangers. Or, or as Paul writes, he says that our citizenship is in heaven. So the reality is we shouldn't feel comfortable, we shouldn't feel normal, we shouldn't feel at home here. But that's the challenge we face, isn't it? Because the church for so long was the center of society and of power and prestige, and it was reflected in the architecture of the buildings that that were built, of church buildings. And and we got comfortable there being in the center, at the heart of things. And we forgot, though, then, that we were foreigners because, because it felt a lot like home. But the church is no longer at the center. We've been well and truly pushed out to the margins. And I'm, I'm convinced that that's actually a good thing for us. Because now we can't rely on political power or social influence to make a difference in the world. Now we have to rely on, as we always should, we have to rely on Christ and on the power of His Spirit. Without a, plat- without a public platform, we're forced to make sure that our private lives reflect the character and the likeness of Jesus, and and that we impact others' life on life. In in short, I I see us coming back to how the church started in the book of Acts, and and how the church exists in countries where faith is persecuted. It seems that in lots of ways, the church is at its best when it's on the margins, because it's from there that our light then shines all the brighter. And as was said of Jesus, can now be said of his body, the church, that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So let's look at a passage of Scripture together to see more about this promise of the church in the world. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 16, starting at around verse 13. Matthew chapter 16. And it's Jesus walking along together with his disciples. And as they do so, Jesus asks, asks them, you know, who do the people say that, that I am? And after hearing their, their various responses, he asks this in verse 15. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered to say, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. 
Peter identifies Jesus as, as the Messiah or, or the Christ, the promised and anointed one, the prophet, priest, king, who would rule over God's chosen and saved people. And it's this reigning and saving Jesus who then says, I will build my church. Here is the promise of the church, or maybe more accurately is the promise to the church that gives us hope as we find ourselves more and more on the margins. There's at least four things for us to note in what Jesus says in this passage. The first is for us to assert that, that Jesus is the one who is responsible for the church because it's his. He says, I will build my church. And it's easy to talk of church as, as mine. My church is Wodonga Baps. You should come and visit my church. My church is doing great things in the community. But it's a bit like a husband announcing that we're pregnant. I understand the sentiment. I get it. But the reality is, only she's pregnant. We are not. <laughs> and it's the same thing then with the church. We say it's my church because it's the one that we belong to. But really, only Jesus can say that it's my church because it belongs to him. He's the head of the church and he's the chief shepherd over it. The church is his and as such, he's responsible for it. And so we can, we can wring our hands about the declining state of the church in society and hopefully, hopefully that prompts us to take action to better be the city on a hill that, that we're called to be. But at the end of the day, it's not our problem to be anxious over. My family is significantly involved in musical theatre in, in the area, hence the question earlier. And one of the things that seems to happen in theatre is that people take ownership of problems that are not theirs. And so you have a member of the ensemble cast, for instance, who just needs to you know, wave a flag in the background. Um, you have a member of the ensemble cast stressing that the stage manager is not closing the curtain at the right time, or, or that this prop is you know, a foot out of where it's meant to be, or, or whatever it might be. But it's not their issue to be concerned about. That's the director's problem. The director is the one who's responsible for it. The cast member just needs to do their thing. They just need to wave their flag as well as they can and leave those other problems to the director to solve because it's their problem. They need to trust that the director who is far more invested in the show and in, in its success will do what needs to be done. And so likewise in the church, we need to do our bit absolutely but in the big picture, we don't need to worry. We need to live out what it means to be the church as best as we are able. But at the end of the day, responsibility for the church and for its progress and for or its decline and its state in society and all of that, that lies with Jesus. It's his church. And he literally has far more invested in it than any of us do. So Jesus is responsible for the church. And so then it's Jesus who is the one who will grow the church. He says, I will build my church. Now, this is not just to say that we can sit around and do nothing and twiddle our thumbs, you know, that, that just by the fact that we're here, you know, Jesus is going to do stuff and the church will grow. Because Jesus tells the story of a man who scatters seed on the ground. And night and day, whether he sleeps or get, gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. 
All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Now, for the seed to grow, the man had to scatter the seed. And for the fruit of the seed to be benefited from, the man had to harvest it. So there's, there's work to be done. The man has a role to play in the growing of his field of wheat. But the growth itself, he has nothing to do with that. That's a work of God mysteriously happening along with us and despite us. Paul addresses the same issue with the Corinthian church. As they held up different church leaders, Paul had to ask, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? He says, we're only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. And so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Jesus will grow his church. To to mix metaphors, Jesus will build it up to be the temple where he dwells. We plant the seed, we, we water it, but the growth is his to do. We can try and force it, we can fake it, but the real growth comes from Jesus. And sometimes that growth looks like shrinking and decline. Sometimes it looks like pruning, where where, where the plant is cut back and seems to be much smaller and less than we want it to be. Our roses at home at the moment are going gangbusters, but like two months ago, they were kind of barely there. Because they'd been pruned for the purpose, of, you know, preparation for, and health for new growth. And the same happens in the church. Pruning, shrinking, decline can sometimes be a means of Jesus' work of building the, the church to see it grow. And so all this has been pretty positive so far. Jesus is responsible for the church and so we don't have to worry. And Jesus is the one who's going to grow his church. But implied in Jesus' words is this reality that the church actually is at war. I will build my church, he says, but then he continues to say, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, regardless of how we interpret the gates of Hades, whether that's as the entrance to death, as the kingdom of darkness, as the realm of Satan, whatever it is, this is is military language. And it's no wonder then that the church faces the the challenges that it does. We're not planted in a benign environment, but we're in a battle zone. Paul writes, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Being a Christian and then being a gathering of Christians in the church, this is not spiritually neutral. We have crossed over from being in the dominion of darkness and come into the kingdom of the sun. And so, of course, we're going to be opposed. Of course, there will be resistance. But while the church is at war, Jesus also says here that the church will prevail. Now, this doesn't mean that every church is going to become a megachurch. This doesn't mean that Um, 
our, our nations will be ruled by Christian leaders who are implementing, you know, laws that are aligned with the Scriptures. Because after all, Jesus, he had no political power and he died on a cross. But death did not have the final say over his life. And the gates of death will not have their final say over the church. Rather, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And there are two ways for us to to read this phrase. One is to say that the church is being assaulted by forces that, that would seek to kill it, but they will not win. Though the church seems to be in decline, though the church is persecuted, though the church is on the outer, the church cannot and it will not die. The other way to read it takes account of the fact that gates, though, they're a defensive feature. You don't see many gates advancing you know, the, the, the battlefront. It's a defensive thing. So yes, the church is being assaulted, but the church is also storming those gates to shine Jesus' light in a dark world and to see others to come to know him. And ultimately, Jesus says that those gates will not be able to stand up against the church. And so we see from these verses that Jesus is responsible for the church, that Jesus will grow his church, and that the church is at war, and that the church will prevail. But what does that really mean for us? I mean, it's stuff that I get excited about because I love the church, and I'm called to be a pastor in the church, you know, to talk, get me talking about church, and I'll, I'll, I'm on board. I'm in that conversation for, for the long haul. So I, I love this stuff. But practically, what does it mean for the ordinary, ordinary Christian who's not a pastor, who faces the question on a Monday morning when they're back at work, when they're at school, when they're at work, when they're at playgroup, when they're at the cricket club? What, what does it mean for the ordinary Christian who's faced with the question, what did you do on the weekend? For a start, I want to say that it means that we actually shouldn't shy away from that question. I, I hate the conversations when people ask me, you know, what do you do? And I have to say, uh, I'm a pastor at the Baptist Church on Melrose Drive. But I've been challenged by this to go, actually, I should embrace that question and that opportunity. Because while socially, because while socially the church might be on the outer, the reality is, is that the church is an expression of God's kingdom coming to bear on this earth. The church is the people of God chosen by him and set apart to be a colony of heaven in a country of death. And so we need to embrace this reality with confidence and with hope and to shine among them like stars in the sky as we hold firmly to the word of life that we have in Jesus. This is the example that we see in the book of Acts. I mean, my small group for the last few months has been working through Uh, The book of Acts, I think we're up to chapter 10 now, so we've still got a while to go. But what we see time and time again is that the early church didn't try for political power. It wasn't striving for social prominence. It didn't try to convert, you know, the local celebrity as if they would give the church credibility. And they weren't holding services specifically designed to to draw in non-Christians. Now, what we see in the book of Acts is that they just lived out their Christian life together. They gave, uh, and that gave them then opportunities to share the gospel with people both high and low. It also led them to experience persecution in the forms of judgments against them and physical suffering and, and imprisonment. 
But then when they prayed, I was really struck by this. I think it's in, um, in Acts 4. When they prayed, they didn't pray for the overturning of unjust laws. They didn't pray that God would smite those who persecuted them. They didn't pray any of that. They prayed simply that they might just keep on living out their Christian life together in the midst of a world that opposed them. And as they did so, that's when the church grew and spread. As they cared for the poor, the church grew and spread. As they included women and children who were you know, otherwise, you know, in the pagan context, excluded out of these social clubs and religious cults and all that kind of stuff. As they included women and children, the church grew and spread. As they welcomed any and all, not requiring an entry fee, uh, to be paid or a social class to be held, the church grew and spread. As they continued to trust God in the face of persecution, the church grew and spread. As they loved one another well, and they, as they met one another's needs, the church grew and spread. As they shared the gospel as they had opportunity, with large crowds and also then with individuals one-on-one, -on -one, the church grew and spread. This is the promise uh, of the church. Martin Luther King wrote a letter from Birmingham Jail about the church in 1963. And in it, he talks about a time when the church was very powerful, those early years of the church. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of community. And he goes on to say that while they were misunderstood and persecuted, they pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to, called to obey God rather than man. Though small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. And by their effort and example, he says, they brought meaningful change to the world. This is essentially then what we are called back to now as we find ourselves small and on the margins again. And so for us, we just need to be the church that Jesus calls us to be. And then we leave the rest to him. We walk with Jesus. We live in the spirit. We love God and we love our neighbors. And we live such good lives among the pagans that they may see our good deeds and glorify God. We need to plant the seeds and, and water the seeds and then watch as Jesus brings the growth because it's his church and in him and with him it will prevail. And so let's pray. Jesus, 